Hallöle and welcome to Null Pointers with your hosts, Mark, Gerald, and Stephen. And today we'll be talking about one of our favorite subjects, authentication. Hey friends, before we get to our favorite topic of the week, authentication, Visual Studio 2022 has just been announced and 64-bit support that comes with it. I already knew, old news. I already knew, old news. (laughs) Yeah, but man, now the NDA is away, so now you can think back, bring back that excitement and spread spread Mm -hmm. the laugh into the microphone. So uh, to be honest, I'm, uh, we've probably established at some point that I'm not the biggest hardware architectural, I don't know, person. Um, so my question was actually to the rest of the team, because this came up while working on Codespaces, because they were heavy working on the Visual Studio client, of course, to also make a server version of that to, to make it all work with uh, Codespaces. And then at some point, you know, it was like, hey, there is going to be also 64-bit support, which is pretty cool. Um, so my question was to the rest of the team, like, okay, that sounds cool and everyone seems pretty happy about it, but what does it do? Um, and I think that the biggest advantage is that, you know, you will now have more access to all of your memory. So even if you, you know, you had this monstrous machine with lots of terabytes of RAM, um, you couldn't use it. So now you can, and you could, you know, just load all those thousands of projects into one solution, open it, debug it, and it will be smooth as ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really love the, uh, the example that they bring uh, on the blog post, which is uh, that they found it that the, it's very satisfying to see that you can load a solution with 1,600 projects and about 300,000 files in Visual Studio. And I might be the only one, but that is a scary number of projects and files you're opening up right there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you can, that's that's not something that you should want to do. <laughs> um, mm. Your machine might could be able to handle it, but you could. That's yeah. that's basically mm. the, the mm. gist of it, I guess. I also don't really. I I also fall in the camp of okay. Didn't know I needed that, but thank you for all the effort. I guess. But yeah, uh, I I do recall obviously sometimes having a Visual Studio that says I'm doing something for about ten minutes and then who knows what it's actually doing. Um, but yeah, that I don't really recall a moment where I thought, damn, I would really like some sixty-four bit support right now. Well, I think it's something that you 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 don't really realize that you want to have it. Um, yeah. Right. Because it's it's like that performance thing that you just mentioned. That's hopefully going to be better now. Um, and I think the team. This was this was a big delivery. I think because I think the team has been pushing off this for like I, I saw a tweet from Frank Kruger. He always likes us. So big shout out to him. Thank you. Um, and it, I think he mentioned like, hey, you, Microsoft has been telling me for ten years that basically this can't happen. Um, so what what changed? And to be honest, I don't know. Um, but something apparently changed because it, it was hard because of all the legacy with Visual Studio, because of all the 
com exchange thing. I don't know what I'm saying now right now, but um, it just had a lot of legacy code and legacy um, um, architectural things that now are apparently out of the way and, and they can do this. So that's cool. And everyone seems very happy. Yeah. Plus, I mean, these days you sort of just expect to be your software in 64-bit. Um, even, even on even on iOS, you can't install an app anymore that is compiled for 32-bit. So it's just like... I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm comparing now apples with oranges, but let's just say it's uh, like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see what you did there. The good, yeah. Just go with the flow. Like, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, sure. With a tool like Visual Studio, there is a ton of dependencies. It's been around for a long time, and it, there you're bound to have some skeletons in the closet uh, when you have been producing a well-running and well-used software for many years. Another thing that I really liked is there is a new design there for you, Stephen. So new icons coming. And uh, one of the features I thought interesting is uh, Live Share. I've I've been using it a bit more lately um, to pair program remotely. It will now have a chat integrated. Mm, I I don't know what I will think of that. Um, It might come in handy. Maybe not. Um, But yeah, who knows? Maybe... Maybe that will be a thing for the future, chatting during pair programming. I think it might be. Not. And I, to be honest, I never, I like, really love the concept of live share, uh, but I never really used it so far. Um, but what would be cool? So I, I have no clue what's in the box right now and what's not. But what would be really cool, I think, is like more voice chat kind of thing. So maybe integrated to call, although you could just set up something. Maybe like you can make speech guess, to text on your end. Hmm. No, but you know, I think it would be easier to. I would. It would be confusing as as hell to type something in your code and then in your chat window and then I don't know. It feels like it would be a mess. It would be easier to just talk out loud, type something. That's basically how I create my YouTube videos and this podcast and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I also uh, I also read that they are going to do some work on the Git integration, I believe, and I also believe that. Just last episode, we all said we don't get in Visual Studio. That's that's we don't do that. So I just don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> Good news for us. <laughs> uh, yeah. <sighs> well, speaking about uh, not getting it, let's move on to authentication. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. I, I mean, yeah. authentication. We do it. I think every day. I have to enter my username and password into some form field or another. Multiple times. Multiple times using a password manager because I'm responsible. But anyhow, sometimes I just use my finger to uh, access a device like uh, my MacBook Pro that I'm currently having in front of me. I can just use the tip of my finger to unlock it. And on some devices like my Surface Book or my iPhone, I can use my face as long as it's not hidden behind a mask. <laughs> you put that on a sensor? like <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just, just slap it. <laughs> what that's not about that's not how it's supposed to work you tell me this now yeah. <laughs> I've, I've used three macbooks and now you tell me i'm not supposed to do this yeah. okay okay yeah no but i mean so, so that's how you how you do it from a user's perspective but i mean from how you then have to implement it i mean let's say from a developer's perspective or even from someone that provides your authentication that can be a challenge and I know, Stephen, you always like to memorize the, the good old days. So you told me just before, earlier, everything was so much easier. It was. 
really um no but like the the thing you have now that is a major problem or at least one of the bigger problems is that everyone is trying to use their own device a mobile device um things that aren't necessarily controlled by the company which obviously with online services like office 365 and all that becoming more and more easier to manage um because you're just logging in through a web portal and that's it but especially the the thing with like the devices that aren't from the company there there used to be so a few years ago i think they they kind of made the shift to make that a bit more of a single sign-on kind of solution um, instead of having devices managed by the company. Um, I'm still pretty sure a lot of companies have company devices, but I haven't had one for a while, except for a laptop, obviously. But um, like things like phones and, and all those other things that are a bit more harder to manage. Yeah, I think that that is one of the things that has improved quite a lot. But I wanted to touch base real quick on something that you already said earlier, Mark. Um, you, you talked about putting in passwords multiple places. And we actually here in the Netherlands had the biggest data breach ever this week, um, where 3.6 million people's data um, out of the, what are we, 17 here in the Netherlands, were sold. So that was... Uh, Small authentication problem, if you want to <laughs> call it that. But yeah, that is uh, that was quite painful. Um, so that was all the all the passwords and everything, and that required some changes for a lot of people. <laughs> I bet that does. I bet that does. And I think one one thing that one can maybe say is uh, I remember back in the day. No, it's actually not. It's actually still done today, uh, as far as I know. It's uh, it's called the basic authentication, basic auth. It's built into the HTTP. And what you do there is you actually, on every request you send, your username and password. It's in the header of the message that you send. So it will be encrypted if you use HTTPS. So just be sure that you use HTTPS all the time. Um, there are many good reasons why. And I think there are quite a few blog posts out there that we could actually link to in the show notes. But getting back on track, I think one of the problems there is you, the client always has to send the username and password with every request that it makes to the server. And since you don't want to ask the user um, on every request to re-enter his username and password, you usually store those informations on the client. So the client will store username and password, hopefully not in plain text, hopefully nicely encrypted, but... You, you have to hope that it's encrypted. And there's then always the good question, well, what if the client gets hacked? Um, so back it, I know like earlier, some machines, they were like super insecure, like Windows 98, you could press escape and the username and password would just vanish and you would be on the desktop. That was a great thing to have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those those security issues, they're in the past from for operating systems, but... Um, you never know. Maybe the client will store it somehow in a fun way. So, and to mitigate that, I think that's why token-based authentication actually is right now all the hype. Okay, so we're going pretty fast here. I've already heard like passwords, putting it in multiple times, single sign-on, token-based, basic authentication. This is this is you we cover everything. Yes, but we're doing it in light speed. Um, okay, so like you said, basic authentication is probably, you know, in this, it all depends on what you're doing, right? Um, it, it's the old developer mantra. It all depends. It depends. Um, so, you know, but 
that's the thing that you want to do. But if you do, then use it with uh, encrypted connections. But ideally, you want to do something else. Um, and I think, you know, if you're going to use just plain um, um, username passwords, I think that's also part of the data breach that's going on in the Netherlands right now, um, where they, they did kind of the right thing. They hashed the passwords. So they saved it not in plain text, but they hashed it. So that means it's unreversible, unlike, um, what is it? And Is it encrypting? That's that potentially... should allow you to decrypt it again. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So hashing should should only be one way. You you hash it and you can bring back what the original value was. You can only hash something else and compare if that matches. Um, and then also what you want to do, because you know, if if some algorithm, uh, hashing algorithm um, is is found out how it works, then you can still you know do some magic on that. Um, what happened with MD5, basically. Um, so what you also want to do is add in some salt, is how they call it, um, which which is you know a random string that you basically come up with, and um, you add that to um, add in some secret to to your your hashing mechanism. So that's basically appending a piece of text to everyone's password. Uh, but and it was kind of weird for this data breach that the the, the that salt was also compromised, but only for accounts until 2018 or something. Yeah. Um, and everyone the, uh, probably after that the salt changed. I guess I that's that's what I'm making up here as I go. Um, and they didn't get the hackers didn't get the new value. Um, so you know there's a lot of things that you can do to make the username the traditional username password thing. Um, more secure as well, uh, but yeah, the thing that you're talking about, Mark, uh, with with token based authentication, what you do is put in that password once, uh, so you authenticate with that because you know that's still the basis of everything, right? The um, username and password, um, but then you exchange that for a token basically, and then you keep renewing that token, and that token um, um, is. You no longer need to send your password uh, or your username, um, but it will just have that token that will be verified each time. So you and it it can also expire, right? Um, so it it expires after a auto, a certain amount of time, uh, or whenever you have the feeling that you say like, "Hey, this isn't right anymore," or something. It feels like someone's hacking me, or um, I don't recognize that login from a certain device. Uh, that's also something that you can see in the Facebooks or the, or the Twitters of this world. You can say, "Hey, I want to disconnect this device," um, or you can log out everything, and then you just expire the tokens, right? So all the devices working with these tokens suddenly are locked out, but your username and password are still safe. Um, so you can just go out and get a new token and work um, as if nothing ever happened. Um, so that's that's kind of the idea behind tokens. Am I missing something with this? I think it's a very good uh, introduction to tokens there, Gerald. Thank you very much. Thank you. And a sum up on the issues with passwords that sometimes get hacked and some mitigation strategies. I think the, the main done. goal behind tokens oh. was uh, that the client, as you mentioned, no longer really has to know the username or password. So what's the, the goal is from uh, authentication mechanisms like OAuth, which is... I think pretty much the industry standard that you then have a authentication server. So you will go to that server. You will say, hey, here's my username and password. And then you will get tokens for that. And the, with uh, there are various options how you can get a token. 
And uh, the most common one these days is the code flow, which uh, will then actually lead you onto a website, which uh, is part of the authentication server. So that means your client app will no longer ever receive username and password. So on, on the good end, you could say, um, I developer do no longer have to be worried that if my app ever gets hacked, that I might be leaking out sensitive information. Uh, on the other hand, what is also a bit plus is if you are the uh, provider of this identity service, you know that no one will be able to brute force attack or, or try those passwords or have a uh, have a kind of software in between that might lock the information before sending it to you. So this is how um, these mechanisms try to make it safer uh, for users to to authenticate. And as you also said, tokens, they are then uh, the substitute for username and password, which means that if you, you get a few tokens, usually you get the access token. So with that, you can then go to your data API and you can interact with it uh, as as you, as the user. And that has got a rather short expiration date. And the interesting thing, if you look at OAuth is, as long as the token is valid, the user can actually access your API. So if you go like, oh, um, I don't really want to do this refreshing of tokens things, I'll just give this uh, a validity of three months. That means even if you delete the user from your authentication service, the token will still be valid for that time. So that's why usually it's a lot shorter. Sometimes it's a day. Some people, they make it as short as 10 minutes. And usually what you get with the access token is a refresh token, which will then allow the application to get a new access token without having to ask for a username or password. And that access token can be revoked. Now, I've, I've said it before, there are different ways how to authenticate a, a user, and I have quickly braced the code flow. I know, Stephen, you have been um, doing some authentication work in the past uh, using Azure AD. Which approach did you use there? So the thing I, I used for my personal app is the MSAL, which is the Microsoft Authentication Library. Um, that's a new or a follow-up NuGet package that you can install. It's a follow-up of Azure Active Directory Authentication Library, or ADAL, or A-D-A-L, however you want to call it. So it allows you basically to implement the token flow that you guys already talked about earlier. Um, and what I like about it, especially if you use it in a mobile app, um, is that it delegates all the getting login data into a separate browser window. It separates all that stuff into a separate browser window and basically your username and password are never known inside the app because that's on a separate browser window somewhere. Um, but when authentication completes, it calls back into your app. Uh, you get the access token that you guys mentioned. You will need to store that somewhere yourself um, because you're going to need that for every subsequent call that you make to some sort of service that uses it. Um, and you also are allowed to get that refresh token um, in case something goes wrong somewhere along the way. And I think that's that's kind of like how you mentioned this in the context of like live or, or Microsoft account or I don't know what it's called these days. Yeah, live. Uh, but this is this is kind of the flow for every OAuth thing. So OAuth is more like a definition of how things should work, right? So you have a provider that's initiating the 
um, authentication, you put in your username and password there, or you're already logged in. Um, then you you go to the thing, they create a token for you, give that back to the app that's requesting, um, and they can only work with that token, right? So um, you have like you have Microsoft as the identity provider, but you also have Facebook or Google, um, and what they they basically do is like you know they keep your credentials safe for you. The only thing they're handing out is like tokens and saying like, hey, this is actually the person that they say they are because they've provided me with this username and password. So they've proved to me that they are this person. Here is a token that is valid and you can check with us, with us if it's still valid or not. And then you can go out and do all the things. An MVP app or Gmail or you know any website that incorporates some kind of identity provider. Um, and, and you can basically do that. And the way this works is, you know, if you configure something, then you will have to um, provide some kind of callback URL. So if you're building an app and you want to integrate this, then you're going to say, hey, I want to go to this Google URL to start the authentication. And this is my callback URL. Um, and that callback URL is going to be called by Google in this case uh, and and have a certain format for like the body or the or the, the parameters i don't know how to do it but that is all specified in that oauth specification um, and with that callback url they're going to call back into you and provide you with the token and maybe some additional details like the username or the email that that person is using so in theory this all sounds pretty easy right but authentication is always hard and always something that people hate for some reason so why is that i'll, I'll give it a shot I have been doing this a few times and every time you do the authentication part, something will fail uh, at the first attempt. Mostly it's some configuration that is not set properly and you'll just get some weirdo error that not working, general error. Uh, clients does not meet the expected parameters, something whatnot. And what often then makes it even a bit harder is uh, one person is usually doing the client and another person is doing the back end. And if they are both doing this the first time, they are both in for a bit of a learning curve trip because the server usually has got some configurations that have to be exactly the same on the client so that it will work. And if you miss one of those steps or there are some default configurations which you might not even be aware of that differ from your implementation of a library uh, then to the server, you will just have to hope that other people on Google, uh, on the GitHubs and the Stack Overflows have run into the same problem and have asked about that issue and have received an answer how that goes. And I think that is like one of the, the problems is there is no easy going because there are, I don't know, 20 parameters, 100 parameters, 1,000 parameters, it sometimes feels that you can uh, set and make slight adjustments to your authentication uh, server and clients and they just have to align or otherwise it will just not work and uh, yeah that's uh, those are the the fun moments that you sometimes walk into yeah that that is also my experience with i've i've done the microsoft account thing once or an attempt to do it um, and then you also have to you have the right tenant configured and the right callback url and then whenever you're doing it in an app that callback url is going to be like one of those custom scheme kind of things because it has to call back into your actual application and like you said it all has to line up um, to actually work because it has to be super secure right so that's uh, that's that's obviously the uh, the most important thing for all of this. 
Um, and then you're going to, you know, you're not going to have your live authentication stuff um, and, and test with that. So you also want to have some kind of dev environment for that to test all the things. And you need to swap the things out. And that makes it even more confusing because those tenants are just GUIDs that are a million characters long and no one can remember them. So, um, you know, it's, it's just a mess setting all that up. Um, also, I know, so I've been in touch with uh, Christos Matskas. I'm sure I'm butchering his name. Um, he was living in the UK. I think he's from Greece originally. He was living in the UK and he's now in the US. Um, he's also at Microsoft and he now works at the actual identity team. Um, so doing a lot of stuff with this. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I because I've been in touch with him, I'm following him on Twitter and, and, and such. And he has been putting out a lot of great content if you are struggling with this. So go check that out. I think he's also streaming a lot with the 425 uh, show, the 420. I don't know. It probably stands for something, but I don't know what. But I think he they, that team is also very much uh, very busy with like, you know, trying to get rid of that um, that page that everyone is seeing with uh, first uh, selecting which account you want to log into, uh, which can be the same email address for it, like your work or your personal account, which ever drives everyone crazy. Um, and second, you know, to enter that password and you have that checkbox with do not ask me again, and it still asks me every time. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're trying to reduce that friction there, you know, basically going away from actual passwords like with fingerprint readers or maybe smart cards or certificates um, and another thing that i'm really really happy about which we didn't really take up in the show notes I'm, I'm looking over them here is like your your hardware kind of keys because i have a yubi key since forever which is doing a pretty cool job too which is basically like your usb kind of stick thumb drive kind of format thing and they have loads of connector format so it can be USB-C they even have a lightning one they have one with on one end USB-C and on one end lightning I think so you can you know put it in your iPhone as well as your computer uh, they have it with NFC so you can just tap it into something uh, also your iPhone by the way or your Android or just regular USB ones and the cool thing is that you can just you know you plug that into your computer that is something that that's really like the two-factor thing right it's something you know and something you have or something like that so you would still have to log in with your credentials maybe at some point, uh, depending on how the security is. But you could do the two-factor thing with not getting that text message because that is actually very insecure uh, because people can spoof your number or clone your SIM card or whatnot. Um, so with that hardware key, you you basically just have the the key to your front door, right? It's just a physical thing that they have to steal off from you. And uh, you have to put that in the computer to actually verify it's you. So that is that is pretty cool stuff too. Yeah, you told me where you kept yours earlier. Where, where was that again? Yeah. yeah, it's in the safe and the combination is one, five, six. No, so, uh, but- yeah. Four, five, two. Right. Yeah, oh, four, five, two. That's the for your keyboard, what's it, what it's for. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I, write, I wrote, don't look here on it, so. That's oh, a, just yeah. just don't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think yeah, you're right. Two-factor authentication is is very important, and I think that's also like a another topic why authentication seems always a bit hard because usually you implement it once in an app and then you never touch it again. And so maybe a few months or even years later, you do another authentication run and you think, hey, I know how these things work now. But authentication it changes, it evolves. So there are 
changes uh, in the security standard how how you do certain things. So for example, these days you make the proof key for a code exchange, or as I've heard it's been pronounced Pixie, P-K-C-E uh, for short, uh, which is, is a further additional security measure so that uh, the clients that makes the call on the server, they don't get spoofed by a man-in-the-middle attack, stuff like that. And two-factor authentication has become a major thing. So even if you're using an account, they get leaked. Uh, there's an additional security measure, which uh, you usually have with you. So it could be a YubiKey. It could be uh, an authenticator app that is on your phone. These days, uh, text messages are thought to be insecure. A couple of years ago, they were used in mobile banking. I remember getting one or two codes uh, over, over SMS. And yeah, so it's also a bit of a, a changing target. And we also get new scenarios that have to be supported. So for example, Gerald, you're a huge IoT fan, I guess. That's why, as me, you have your most of your IoT stored away in boxes, so nothing can happen to it. No dust will settle on it. I mean, that's just who we are. Mm -hmm. And on those, you maybe don't have a keyboard. Okay. You maybe don't even want a user to have to enter a username and password to set them up. So you use a client secret. You can use even a certificate for that so that the authentication mechanism works over that. And uh, if we, as in the studio here, our ginormous screen, uh, when we logged into our favorite accounts there, some would actually support a QR code. So you could scan that uh, with your phone and then have used the keyboard of your phone or your tablet to make the authentication happen. And those measures, they're all built into these, into this OAuth uh, standard. And that's also why it's been used or why it's been adopted so widely. But uh, a fun fact was, this is now a few years back, but there's also this OpenID Connect thing, uh, which came aboard because whenever you authenticated with OAuth, uh, you had an access token so you could get onto the API but no one knew who you were. Do you, do you remember that one, Stephen? Yeah, faintly. Um, I, I never really did very much with OpenID Connect. I used it in combination with Identity Server, I think, which we'll probably touch upon as well. But yeah, it's, it's basically a layer on top of OAuth that allows you to provide additional info, right? So um, something that you would, for example, in, in what was that? Was that Windows-based, Windows identity type stuff where you can have claims that you're something? Yeah, it, it, I think it's comparable to that, I guess, in, in the functional sense that you just have additional properties that tell you I'm this, uh, this is something about me. But yeah, I, I never really used it extensively. So any of you have done anything with, with OpenID? I can't say I have. So I, I like I said, I basically attempted it once. With uh, with the Microsoft accounts, I don't know what it was for actually. Uh, I I touched it, you know, a little bit uh, from time to time, but never really implemented it from from scratch. Basically, I, I generally don't know if you should even try to attempt implementing these things from scratch. Probably not the first time around. Maybe if you've got some experience in the field. Open Identity was was added on top of OAuth because some started to abuse the access token to put in some additional information to be read by the user so they could then suddenly know who, who it was so they could identify it. So these days, if you authenticate with Azure AD or so, you will get three tokens usually. You get the access token, which we mentioned before, to access an API. You can request a refresh token, so you can get new access tokens without having to enter username and password again. 
and you get an identity token. And in that identity token, you can, for example, request uh, from the Microsoft Graph, which is like in M365, a lot of information is stored in there, like with, with company-wise stuff. You can then request that information is put into the identity token. The identity token as the access token has got an expiration date, so it will get invalid after a certain time. So, so that's basically what Open Identity Connect was all about. And you touched on a topic there, identity server, Stephen. Identity server is a way how we can set up a provider. Do you have any other favorites? Azure ID was mentioned. No, not really, actually. Uh, I think most of my authentication has been against an Azure AD of some sort, because typically the customers that I used to work for were pretty much locked into the Microsoft ecosystem. So there, there wasn't really a lot of need for anything outside of just your basic Azure AD type situation. I faintly recall doing something with not OAuth, but AuthO or Auth0. I'm still not quite sure <laughs> how to actually pronounce it. I think it's I a never, zero. It's, I, I realized only now that it could be OthO. Yeah, okay. OthO? Oh, 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 ah, I don't know. Like, See, oh, it's off, hard. But it's, oh, well. Authentication is hard. But yeah, it's I've, I've used that solution, which is, I think, as far as I, I've used it, it allows you to set up all sorts of different type of connectors to different type of systems and have some sort of centralized login box that under the hood uses those connections. So it abstracts away a bit of the implementations that you would otherwise have to figure out yourself. From what I've seen, it's pretty extensive, but I basically only researched it for some sort of project that we needed to do, whether or not it was a good fit. Um, but in the end, I believe the customer decided that they would just go for the AD stuff because they were going to go to AD anyway, or Office 365 AD stuff. So yeah, not, not a lot of different experiences. So Azure AD, I think is, as you just said, it's a, a good choice if you are invested in the Azure ecosystem or you got an Office subscription. Uh, I've even heard of clients that are running on Amazon AWS and they're using the Azure authentication to log in. Uh, that's like one of the nice things if you have a OAuth uh, ecosystem. And I have been also using Identity Server 4 uh, for certain projects, that's mainly when the user is not on Azure. Uh, he, we run on a uh, on-premise hardware, and we need some authentication, and there's just nothing in place. So what you do there with Identity Server, it's based on ASP.NET Core, but it's it's basically you're building your own little little Azure AD. So it's it's more an infrastructure thing, uh, which then you can authenticate and and apps can then uh, verify that that user is is a uh, a, yeah, a trustworthy user. It's quite, yeah. So the product is made from by Brock Allen and Dominic Bayer, and they are now spinning this off into a new product. So it, I think it's interesting to keep an eye on if this will be free in the future. Uh, then again, I mean, these thing, these uh, authentication servers, they need a lot of time. And we already said there's a, always innovation going on, new devices coming onto the market, new ways how you can authenticate. So I guess one could bring up the question, is it uh, fair to request these things for free? But uh, the identity server for sure is a bit um, a complex beast when it comes to configuration. And I just want to give out a little shout out to a personal friend of mine, Damien Bowden. He's an MVP in Switzerland, and he has made a .NET template, which you can install on the command line, which will set up a, 
ready to go identity server, which is more or less already configured. And you just will have to do some very, very small changes uh, to get it up and running. And another one that I have been looking at, and I know some friends of mine have already used it, is Keycloak, uh, which is also an open source solution, which you can use and it's free. And I think it mainly uses configuration. Only downside, it's in Java. I'm just kidding. We we love Java, especially Gerald loves Java. Uh, so yeah. Oh yeah. Anything we miss, Gerald? You can wake me up for Java all the time. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. I think we already are almost over time. Um, so you know, there there were some things I wanted to add here and there because I was I was talking about the two factor authentication in in an attempt to reduce passwords, then I suddenly switch to the YubiKey, which is of course not correct. That's not going to help you with um, you know, fewer passwords. But um, uh, another interesting thing in that area, by the way, is you also have a lot of products that use some kind of magic link, uh, which is you know also kind of um, safe because you don't have to use the username and password. But what they will do is you say, I want to log in for this user. Um, and usually there is some kind of email address register to to that account, right? So they will send you an email and that is basically an email with a token that will automatically then lock you in, which is pretty cool too. For the YubiKey, um, if you if you decide to get one, because you know it's really cool. It's not sponsored. Um, I wish they would, but it's not. Um, but you know, if you lose it, then you're in trouble, right? So for the text messages, it's easy. You just have to keep the same phone number. Um, but if you're going to do the hardware YubiKey two-factor authentication as it's supposed to be, um, and you lose it, then you're in trouble. Um, so you always get a recovery key whenever you get that two-factor authentication enabled. So make sure to write that down. Uh, but also what you might want to do is actually get a second YubiKey. I mean, this is this is smart marketing, man. They, they got this down. Uh, you have to get a second one, which is a backup. So you basically enroll always two keys for every thing. I know at least Twitter supports it, GitHub supports it. Um, so you enroll the two keys, one you keep on you um, and you use from day to day. And the other one um, you stick into a safe or something um, and you don't touch it unless you need to enroll it somewhere. Um, and then if you lose or break the, the first one, then you can always go back to the other one. So that's a pro tip that you've heard right here from Gerald, your friend over at Noble. Yeah, thank you very much for wrapping up this show, Gerald. We have been your hosts, Mark Hallibone, Gerald Close, and Stephen Davison. Let us know what are your thoughts or experiences or nightmares with authentication on Twitter at nullpointers.io. DMs are open. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Stay safe. And until next week on Nullpointers. Pointers.